Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend, where we go behind the scenes and talk to the creators of independent entertainment. I'm Jason Godby, and you know my guest from such films as Baghdad ER, Cuba and the Cameraman, and Rock in a Hard Place, which is now on HBO. He is also the co-founder of DCTV, Mr. John Alpert. Welcome, John. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me here. I wanted to jump right into it and uh, just talk to you a little bit about you so people can get a sense of your background. Um, how did you come to filmmaking? What, what, is, the, uh, what is the story behind that? Um, I'm an accidental filmmaker. Um, you know, we were doing community organizing, and we were doing it in Chinatown and the Lower East Side. And we were spectacularly unsuccessful. We were fighting for better schools. We were fighting for better health care. We were fighting better housing uh, and the Vietnam War. And none of that was getting accomplished. But when we began to make short little films about these issues and show them in the street and show them to people who, who needed to see them, lots of change began to happen. And it was really, really exciting. You, know, you take your little camera and you wave it around, and that's how I became a filmmaker. And then since then, um, I know that you started out as a, a journalist. You worked and you produced a lot of news and things like that. And then you kind of moved into bigger, more narrative projects. Well, it would have been nice if I started out as a journalist. I actually was driving a taxi cab. Um, <laughs> and, and the first initial film we made was an organizing film for us cab drivers that detailed all the terrible things that were happening to us, the dangers of driving. You know, the taxi cab driving, when I was doing it, was the most dangerous job in America, worse than being a coal miner, mm. worse than being a soldier, worse than being a mountain climber. They were killing a cab driver once every three weeks. Wow. Uh, it was the uh, highest incident of mortality of any occupation in the United States. And the film that we made was, was very, very important in helping organize cab drivers. Cab drivers are a difficult workforce to organize because they compete against each other. So if you're in your taxi cab and I'm in my taxi cab and we see some, we're gonna like fight for that fare. We're not fighting against the boss, we're fighting against each other. Uh, but with the camera, Organizing became very, very effective. So I didn't start out as a journalist. And initially, when we made our films, we took our films to the people. If we were making a film about Chinatown, we would show it on a street corner in Chinatown. If we were making films about patients in hospitals, we would bring the film into the waiting room. I don't think I considered myself to be a, a journalist. I was probably some type of rabble-rouser. Well, now, you know... Now you'd be like a vlogger or you'd be like a YouTuber Maybe. or something mm -hmm. like that if that existed back then. Um, and it just goes to show you uh, sort of the evolution of it and the evolution of like the camera as a tool um, to tell stories and point these things out. And, you know, back then that's, you know, this is before Michael Moore. You know, this is before, this is like Michael Moore was in in, in knee highs. Right, right. Uh, uh, before cell phones. Uh, before cable television. And you didn't this have like, that immediacy of like video on the internet. And so you were, I mean. But we had the immediacy of putting our cameras on the, uh, our, our, our TV sets on the sidewalk and having people watch films about themselves. And that was a fantastic tool. And in terms of learning the craft, people didn't like our films, they walked to the subway. And so if we made a film that was self-indulgent, that was boring, that was difficult to understand or didn't resonate with the audience, they're gone. You have the ultimate, you have, the, you have that ultimate, uh, now they do test screenings in Hollywood, but you're finding out live from, and right. because 
that's the audience you want to capture because it's about them. Yeah. So if they're not paying attention, then you, you know you've lost them, and then you you know you can recut or go back to the go back to the drawing board kind of thing. Yeah, there was a lot of um, sort of navel gazing in in those early days of video making. Um, people would make feedback loops. You know, they would point a camera into a mirror, and you would see a camera and a camera and a camera and a camera. And they would look at this for like a long time. There might have been isn't there a book uh, Michael Palin's new book about psych psych psychedelic uh, consumption. It was a lot of that associated with some of the early video. And we weren't into that. We were into having an effective purpose to the film and have it accomplish something. And so we began to really ruthlessly edit our films because the intention span of people on the streets is really, really short. And so that was helpful to us. I mean, I don't think you can get better experience than that. So through making these sort of like activist movies, mm -hmm. This is how DCTV evolved Correct. and came out about it. So uh, for those who are uninitiated and those maybe outside New York uh, who don't know about it, what is DCTV? So we're the oldest and to some degree the most honored community media center in the United States. There are some aspects of that that are going on here in the Brick Media Center, but uh, we preceded that and uh, we're located in a landmark firehouse let's see let's do the commercial here okay see this beautiful <laughs> firehouse here okay landmark firehouse uh, in chinatown and we have our studios there we have our classes there i just walked by a very impressive classroom filled with what looked to be 20 30 students uh, we at the most have i think four to six uh, students in our classes because we want to have everybody have really really hands-on experience so if you want to learn the things that it took me a long, long time to learn, the camera work, the editing, the audio work, the fundraising, um, the legal aspects of filmmaking, we have classes in all of that. And so we're dctvny.org. So give me some of the highlights of, of projects that have, have come about because of DCTV. So we've gone through uh, a number of phases. The first phase was showing the films on the street. Uh, in 1974, we had our first documentary on public television. And so for uh, 1974, for the next five or six years, we made a documentary a year for public television. But good documentaries are often controversial. They often should be. And um, public television is often conflict-diverse. Uh, they're nervous about their fundraisers, they're nervous about Congress, they're nervous about their own shadow uh, in, a, in a way that makes um, friction for good, hard-hitting documentaries. And even though um, every documentary that we made had a bigger audience, won more prizes, um, it was a documentary we made about health care, and very specifically here in Brooklyn at Kings County Hospital, mm. called Healthcare: Your Money or Your Life. And it, it documented the third world medical care that people without money were getting in the United States. And people were dying on camera. And it was a shocking, it was a shocking documentary. And uh, that was the uh, sort of our execution notice from public television. They did not want a documentary that was attacking the American medical establishment. So we walked the plank. Uh, luckily, uh, instead of falling into the ocean and drowning, we wound up at NBC. And for 13 years, we didn't make documentaries. We were sort of the fire brigade for NBC. And wherever the bell was ringing, anywhere in the world, so for example, in Gaza Strip, we would be there filming this. And the next day would be on uh, either Nightly News or the Today Show. It was a wonderful opportunity 
to go around the world. We had, we were the only people that had a total editorial control of our film. Really? Yeah, yeah. And um, it, it was, um, we, we, we were able to treat um, even, even subjects that we had to respond to quickly in some degree of death because um, Steve Friedman, who ran the Today Show in those days, would let us serialize our coverage. And so we would do five minutes Monday, five minutes Tuesday, all the way to Friday. So by the end of the week, we would have almost a half hour's worth of material on a particular subject. It was extraordinary and very unusual and to some degree in contradiction to the way uh, news is organized. And when General Electric took over NBC... Um, Conflict of interest? Um, well, um, again, our days were numbered. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was our coverage of the first Gulf War that got us blacklisted at commercial television. And so we were done at public television. We were done at commercial television. And uh, I was sort of sitting on the, the curb you know, licking my licking wounds, wounds feeling, yeah. feeling sorry for myself when Sheila Evans drove by in her HBO Cadillac and mm. said, um, wait a minute, I've looked at your films and this is the type of thing that we would like to use to invigorate our documentary program. And we had a really uh, wonderful roller coaster ride um, in every aspect of that at HBO for many years. So tell me, uh, when when is this happening? This is, um, so the, the Gulf War is in the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is what around what year, like 95, 96? No, it, it was coincidental to the Gulf War. We were getting blacklisted around the same time that uh, we began working for HBO. And since then, I mean, that's 20 years ago, what have you guys produced for HBO um, that um, people might be familiar with in the last... So the first series we did for HBO was uh, a series called Life of Crime. There were two Life of Crime shows, uh, and we followed three drug addicts from Newark, New Jersey, in the most intense, personal, emotional way for more than 10 years. Uh, an extraordinary experience, and I spent more time with them than I did with my family when it was their birthday. I was filming when it was my daughter's birthday. I wasn't home. Mm. Um, we did um, another... We, did another drug-themed documentary up in Lowell, Massachusetts, high on Crack Street. Did you ever see the movie um, The Fighter? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. They ripped that off, okay? That, that's 100% uh, no based. You, you'll, you'll look at the two things side by side, and you'll go, oh. Um, uh, one of the most fun experiences I had as a documentary maker was uh, following Pat Summit, the head coach of the University of Tennessee women's team, for mm -hmm. a year. It's a documentary called Cinderella Season. Um, everybody thought I had made the mistake of focusing on Pat and her team because they couldn't win any tough games that year. Uh, but there was something in the way in which she talked. There was something in the, the, the sort of gleam in the eyes of some of the players. Um, documentary filmmakers have to follow their hunches. They won the national championship, and we were right there filming it. I even have goosebumps right now thinking about it. Um, what else did we do? We did um, Baghdadi R, in which we embedded... Uh, with um, the doctors and personnel of the main military hospital in Baghdad at the height of the war when the bodies were coming in every 15 minutes. Um, brutal, br brutal, brutal experience, but one that the American people needed to see because you understood the heroism of the people who we had sent over there to fight the war, and you understood the terrible cost. Well, you know, I, I was always interested in that stuff, and, and there have been a series of documentaries and even fictional narrative films that have come out about the recent Iraq war and the uh, Afghan war. Mm -hmm. But this was really the first war that, you know, it was on the news, 
but you didn't see flag draped coffins coming home like you did with Vietnam. Like you didn't, there was no draft, obviously, but this was a major war that's one of the longest in our history mm -hmm. that the American public just kind of didn't seem to care about all that much. Or there was a, maybe a certain segment of people that cared, but it wasn't really shown that way. So to do something like this is, I mean, you know, I, for one, am not running to Afghanistan or mm -hmm. I, Iraq anytime soon uh, to, to do work over there, but the the passion behind that and the will to like get the truth behind something like that uh it's it's really daring it's really admirable i mean how long were people over there when that project was taking place well um i grew up in the suburbs and so the sort of most threatening scary experience um i'd had up to when i began making films was the big tough kids from downtown, Tommy Salvatore and Drew Cervasio standing in the hallway waiting for us little wimps to come by and having <laughs> them like push us up against the lockers. And so I, uh, there's, there's nothing in my background that would um, steal me against something like this. But by this time, um, I, I had been to more wars than I can count. Uh, in in places from Vietnam to Cambodia to Central America to the Philippines, um, in Afghanistan when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, I was the first American to get in. I crossed over the Iranian border. When the Russians left, I was riding out on their tanks filming this. Um, so I had had a lot of experience. And and um, you'll talk to anybody who covers um, who covers war, and it gets inside them and it doesn't come out. And it becomes our duty, no matter how scared we are uh, and how difficult it is to continue to experience, it becomes our duty to inform people who haven't been to war what it's like. Uh, during the first Gulf War, the media was m manipulated in, in a way that uh, shames our democracy, and everybody talked about it. They created, for the second Gulf War, this system of being embedded. And I thought, they're just going to lead me around and um, try to snooker me and hide things the way they did in the first Gulf War. But that actually wasn't the case. The military, you mean? The military. Yeah. Um, now, the Bush administration absolutely had a policy uh, that, that you referred to of not showing the flag-draped coffins, um, not letting anybody go to certain places where they might see dead people and um, keeping the media away from Section 60 in Arlington Cemetery where our heroic soldiers are buried. They, they did a really good job of, a, of that until we came along. Hmm. And um, what I realized uh, the first day when we were in the hospital, helicopter came in with some type of like, I, I can't even describe how twisted and burnt the body was. 50 minutes later, another body, 50 minutes in, and uh, two amputations in the first day. We were at the base of a funnel and all the casualties, the costs and the deaths of this war were coming to us. We didn't have to go anywhere. We were only scheduled to be in this hospital for one or two days. And I realized that if we were going to make a good documentary and all you want to be documentarians, if you're in the right place, you got to hold on to it and you got to figure out how to maintain your access. And so at uh, five o'clock in the morning, I was sitting on the steps of the hospital commander's office 
and, um, and, and pleaded my case, but not only my case, his case and America's case, that if he felt that they were doing a heroic job there and if he felt America needed to see what his, his, his troops were doing, but also what the cost of this war was, that they had to allow us to stay there, and he did. Um, so this became quite controversial because the uh, Bush administration tried to get HBO to kill this project and threatened HBO and punished HBO in a way that cost HBO millions and millions of dollars. HBO had the courage to stand up to them, broadcast the show. At that particular point, we were blacklisted from all military projects until this evil secretary of the army lost his job hmm. because he didn't care what the conditions in Walter Reed Hospital were. There were rats. There was just a horrible situation. He said, mm. So he lost his job. And the next day, the army called, apologized for the sort of treatment that we had been given, that HBO had been given. They said that uh, we really appreciate what you did because you're the only people that show the American people what we're doing. And our film is mandatory viewing for anybody who's entering the army. If you want to become an American soldier, you watch our film. Wow. I, I think that it just goes to speak to the point, because I feel like journalism that we're getting now, it's, I feel like documentaries in a way are the new investigative journalism. We still have it with newspapers, uh, Washington Post, the, the New York Times or something like that. But to really get into a story, I feel like the nightly news, we're getting this sort of edutainment, mm -hmm. uh, newsutainment kind of stuff where it's got to be uh, flashy and fun and there's always, you know, some kind of, you know, salacious little story that they bury at the end of the thing so that you maybe sit through some of the important stuff at the beginning. But uh, I, I think for myself, educating myself, uh, whether it be political or, or whatever social implication, uh, it's always watching uh, you know, an hour and a half or two hour film or like the uh, the series that they just had on, on PBS about the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. um, that was enlightening to a point where, uh, you know, because we had never seen the other side of that war. Sure. You know, um, and that's, you know, that's I think that's the real significance and value of, of documentary filming is that you can. And documentaries also, tell me if you agree or dis disagree with this, but you are really allowed to have a point of view in terms of uh, you can tell a story from this particular point of view and you don't you don't have maybe the obligation that like the news does where it has to be sort of more omniscient uh, perspective. Um, well, one thing that documentarians bring is they bring time. They put a lot of time into making their films. And, I mean, I might come to your studio here and think that this place is really great because I'm spending 20 minutes here. But I might not know that there are internal politics, that they don't let you have the room when you want to have it, that the equipment doesn't work. And I'm not going to find that out in 20 minutes. But if I come here 20 times, I'm going to figure it out. And so that's this sort of blessing and the curse of of making documentaries is that they are very time intensive and labor intensive compared to the nightly news when you have 90 seconds to try and tell something. So if you're lucky and you're a poet and you can condense the emotions and the facts into 90 seconds, uh, but there are not a lot of good poets in this world. Um, and um, it, it's why we need documentaries in order to give us a, a, a better understanding. Um, you need access. And so for example, if I hadn't acquired access to that hospital, I never would have been able to make that movie. Right. Um, and you need passion because you have to feel that 
this story must be told because you're going to have to stand in that operating room day after day. I was there with Matt O'Neill. We traded shifts, 12-hour 12, 12 shifts. I do 12 hours, he do 12 hours. And it, by the end of two or three weeks, the, the sort of psychological burden that we were having to absorb was just unbelievable. Uh, and, and you need to have that passion inside you in order to continue to drive so that you can stand there and bear witness. Otherwise, you're just going to crumble. If you were to give uh, someone advice now uh, about going into this... Law school. Go to law school? <laughs> That's what my mother always wanted oh, to do. Oh, go to law school. <laughs> instead, instead of becoming... But if, if, if there was anything that... Um... And that's what happened in my daughter's case. So, so for example, my okay. daughter, I, I had sort of like been... I don't want to say grooming is not the right word, but it, 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 it was always rewarding to me to think that, that my daughter might want to follow uh, some of these footsteps but it was conflicting with my um, n need and desire as a parent to protect my kid. And those two things were in conflict all the time as we were going around the world and getting into increasingly dangerous places. And when we crossed over the Afghan border together and rolled down the windows and a dozen machine guns uh, pointed back at us, my daughter looks at me and she goes, Daddy... How how come nobody in the family tried tried to stop us? Because you know we, we just sort of yeah moved well, into that particular good place. Good question. So so if you're good asking question. to the, to to um you know whatever particular advice you've really got to believe this is a tough 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 line of work, but it's extraordinarily you got to start out with the type of passion that will take you through. I mean, and, I mean, look at you. And, I mean, the, the you you've called me. 10 times to try to set this up, the schedule's moving around. If you don't believe really, really sincerely that it's important for you to organize these talks right. and to have uh, this information go out, how much are you getting paid? Oh, uh, for this? Yeah. Oh, this is me, man. Nothing, this is, this is, right? This is, so, I'm so, producing this thing. Exactly. And so this is, this is, this is what documentary anything is about. Um, the pay scale is, I mean, there's a couple of documentarians that have made money and we all know who they are, but there's like three or four of them. There's another class of documentarians who come from very wealthy families and there's a surprisingly large number of them. And then there's everybody else. Uh, and I assume if you're watching this, that you're in the everybody else category, but you can wake up in the morning, really, really excited that something that you're going to do is going to have a positive impact and is going to change things in a good way. And you wouldn't do this if you didn't feel that. Absolutely. I, I mean, I hope, I'm hoping this program is helping people. But uh... Write him so that he, he gets encouragement, okay? <laughs> so, you know, you tell him what your email address is. Uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. If anybody, uh, you guys can tweet us, uh, tweet at us, or uh, find uh, find us on the web. But uh, thank you so much for coming, and uh, and thank you guys for joining us. Find us on the web, btrp.nyc, and you can go. T uh, you can find D DCTV at dctvny.org. Great, thank you so much um, for behind the Rapper productions. I'm Jason Godby, and we'll see you next time.